You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live and the latest in our next series, where we talk to rising change makers and influencers. I'm Elahe Azadi, a media reporter and co-host of the podcast Post Reports here at the Washington Post. And today we are joined by Plesia Alakad. She's 22 years old and she grew up in Gaza City. Plesia found herself on the front lines of reporting the destruction of her hometown during the war that started after the October 7th Hamas attack in Israel. Plestia is now joining us live from Australia right now. Plestia, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me as well. Plestia, first, I did want to start with just asking you, how are you doing and, and how is your family? Okay, I hate this question because okay. I feel that I don't have, but I answer it because I feel that I don't have an answer to it. Mm. Like, how is one supposed to feel with everything that's happening back home? You know, like even if I'm physically in Australia right now, I'm mentally in Gaza, obviously. And I keep thinking the situation will get better maybe tomorrow, maybe after tomorrow. Like, I know deep down that it will get better, but the question is when. Every day I'm following the news and it's just getting worse. I try to talk to my friends and it's even hard to talk to people back home to know if they're alive or not because of suddenly there's a blackout. And even if there's not a blackout, there's barely any cellular connection. So you can't you can't just live a normal life with everything that's happening. You can't pretend that you're okay, you know? Yeah, and, and I think what you're sharing is so telling about the experience that you and, and others who we're able to leave Gaza are, are going through now this sort of dual existence. Um, and, and we're going to get to that a little bit later about how you were able to leave. But it, it, do you feel like that's a way of of thinking about it, like this dual existence almost? Yeah, you described it perfectly. And, you know, I lived with my family, like my grandma is with me right now. And I keep thinking of her like she's in her 70s and I don't know, she got displaced several times. So it's even hard on the elderly people, not only in the young generation, it's basically hard on everyone, to be honest. Yeah. Well, I did wanna also start our conversation with you telling us a little bit of what it was like to grow up in Gaza before everything broke out and it started this fall. Can you describe what Gaza was like for you as a child? What was it like to grow up there? What were the places like? Okay, so life in Gaza was obviously always full of challenges, full of struggles. It's never stable because you're living under occupation. You can never plan your next day. You never know what will happen. Like suddenly an aggression, a genocide starts. So life was never stable. But me personally, I really love Gaza. I love my life there. It's also kind of weird, but I always felt safe. Like Obviously, it's not a safe place, but you feel safe. I don't know how to describe it. I loved growing up in Gaza. I love the people there. I believe that because of the struggles and hardships we Palestinians go through, that brought the community closer together. Like We understand each other's pain. We can relate to each other. Also because Gaza is a really small place and it's overcrowded. So everyone knows everyone. People are close to each other. I love our culture. I love our food. And also like in the past three years, almost past the three years, Gaza was evolving a lot. There were many new cafes and new restaurants and new beautiful places, but obviously everything got bombed now. And I remember as a child, like growing up, 
24 seven, there's the sounds of drones in the sky, but you get used to it. The same way people abroad get used to the sound of rain and thunderstorm. People in Gaza get used to drones and bombs and airstrikes. So be you become to normalize this life, even though it's not normal. I love my life there. Like no matter everything that I'm saying, I still love it. I love the people. I love the community. I love the sea. I love the food. I love hanging out with my friends. I love hanging out with my family. Yeah. 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 You mentioned growing up and on in the midst of this beauty, also having this experience of becoming uh, accustomed to the sounds of, of drones and that sort of thing. When you were young and as a child, I'm wondering how did your mother, or your parents sort of guide you through that? How were they explaining to you what was going on? Okay. So I'm now 22 years old and for aggressions, yeah. I've attended, not attended, how do we say it? I've witnessed, I've witnessed for aggressions and the genocide that that's still happening now. And when I was younger, like my parents used to always tell me, oh, it's far away, nothing bad will happen. And sometimes, oh, this is, this is thunderstorm. Like, I don't remember crying a lot or like, I don't remember that fear was controlling me even as a child. Because, but like now when I'm older, I think of my parents a lot and I think of the children a lot. Like, like now with everything that's happening, you can't, you can't lie to children or, or tell them this is rain, this is thunderstorm. Like children are so aware of what's happening. Children are not allowed to be children in Gaza, you know? Mm -hmm. So no matter how much your parents try, somewhere you, in your heart and your brain, you kind of understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned the word genocide. We should just mention to our audience that since the war has broken out, um, South Africa has brought genocide charges against Israel to the International Criminal Court. That is the question before the court right now. And just some news on Friday, uh, Israel has denied accusations that it has committed genocide. The ICJ is con still considering this question. Um, it has not ruled that Israel has committed genocide at this moment. It has ordered Israel to stop, do what it can to prevent civilian deaths, um, stop short of calling for a ceasefire. Um, but that case is still continuing on in the court. So just that update of, of that news right now. Um, just going back to you, Plastia, and, and your story, I understand that you know you grew up. You were um, interested in journalism, is that right? And that you studied yeah. in Cyprus. And before the war began, you had just graduated with a degree. Um, can you tell me at what point did you have this interest in journalism? What was it that drew you to this field? Okay, so this is an interesting story. When I was in grade six, my Arabic teacher, her name is Rawan Surani, she was a journalist, a reporter, and a teacher at the same time. And I thought that was so cool, and I want to be like her when I grow up. Then, and then in grade 12, I was like, hmm, I have to choose what I want to study now. And I wanted to actually study drama. And I applied for one university to study drama and I got accepted. Then I was like, I don't want to study drama. It's a new media and journalism. Like journalism is what I want to do. And I've always knew that. So I studied the new media and journalism. Yeah, and you had just graduated with a degree a few months before the war began. And then the war began and all of a sudden you found yourself chronicling what was happening on the ground in Gaza. At that time, were you thinking, I need to get this message out, I need to show people what's going on? What was kind of going through your head when you picked up the phone in those first few days and started recording yourself? 
okay like you don't really think you don't have time to think you don't have time like you just find yourself holding your phone and trying to do your part and trying to covering trying to show to the world what's happening trying to tell the world what's happening like i feel even if i didn't study new media and journalism i would have done the same work that that i've done because you feel like it's your duty to show the world what's happening like it's your job you have to tell the world what's happening and i believe social media helped in changing the narrative a lot i'm also wondering um how was, was it difficult to even get a cell phone connection to be able to even do this you know with every everything going on right around you the word difficult is even an understatement. You know, I was looking at my phone the other day. There are actually many stories that I have many unposted footage. And the reason that I have many unposted footage because it was hard to have internet connection and to post. I used to use eSIMs and using eSIMs, you have to go to certain places and the internet is not even that great. Sometimes you get a 3G, rare times you get a 4G and it's dangerous. You have to go to a high place or a place close to the sea to have some connection. And also I was so afraid the whole time, like what if something happened to my phone? What if it gets destroyed? Also running out of battery was like fear because I hardly charge my phone, sometimes in hospital, sometimes in the car. So being a journalist in a war zone was so challenging because you can't even do your job properly. You don't have tools. Like uh, I had... <clears throat> If you I need to take a break and then grab some water or something, we understand too. <laughs> we're having we're having you share a lot. I'll, <laughs> okay. I'll yeah, I'll do the same. <laughs> okay, so I was working with two other journalists, and the three of us, we only had one mic to do interviews. We only had one mic because the other two mics that we had, they got ruined, and we couldn't find a place to buy a new mic. So. That's the thing. It's so challenging because you're you're hard like you're working with with almost no tools. Yeah, and in the video we saw in the introduction that you you talked about the helmet and the press vest. At, at what point or from the very beginning, or I'm curious, did your mentality of who you were in this moment, did it shift from I am a civilian in this moment whose family is going through this to I'm also now a journalist. I, I, did that shift happen at one point or was that always present for you? Okay, me as a journalist, I always said this sentence, I'm a human before being a journalist, you know? So it was always Plistia the human more than Plistia the journalist. Like at the beginning, I was always wearing the press vest and the press helmet because of safety reasons and being professional and blah, blah, blah. Then the more journalists I killed, I was like, why am I even why am I even wearing a press vest and helmet? It's only bringing more danger. And I felt that I'm not only a journalist, I'm a human before being a journalist. So like I might take them off and I just took them off, to be honest. Mm hmm. We should also say that now many people see what you post. You know, when you first began, you had a few thousand followers and, and now you have nearly five million at last count. Were you aware that so many people around the world were learning about what was happening in real time on the ground from you? At what point did that realization come to you and did it change how you approach what you were doing? Okay, so that realization came to me around the next week. Yeah, the next week for two days, I didn't have 
internet connection and people and also I barely had a cellular connection like I wasn't able to even do phone calls like you have to call a person 10 or 20 times until you're able to get hold of them so people were calling me and they're like everyone on social media is asking you're dead you're alive or what happened to you or where did you disappear you post something and I was like I don't have internet and I can't charge my phone that's why I can't post anything at the moment and I was also sick and tired and I started feeling more responsibility the, like the more people are following me I felt I have to post more, I have to show more and also to be honest like deep down I was afraid because the more people follow you, the more exposure you get, the more you're a target. So that was scary, to be honest. Can can you say a little bit more about, about the safety concerns that you had um, as you were gaining more followers and, and not just for you, but also your family? Okay, you know, like during, during what was happening, every time something bad happens and I feel relieved, I'm like, okay this is the worst thing that could possibly happen nothing worse could happen so it's okay but then things keep getting worse like at the beginning i remember when journalists are getting targeted i was afraid but i was like it's okay like if i got targeted it's fine then i saw what is the family got targeted and i'm like oh so now families of the journalists are getting targeted as well and i was so afraid that something bad will happen to my family because of a profession that i chose you know and I was like, and I like, I'm not even low key a journalist. Like, I have a high profile. People are following me. I'm getting recognized. So I was afraid that, like, I was always thinking, what is the post that I will post, and they'll get annoyed, so they'll target me, or or something bad will happen to my family. You know, like the whole time I was just thinking, what will happen? Will I wake up the next day? Like, I was always afraid, to be honest. Okay, I was trying to act tough and it's fine. Like, my mom, obviously, she was afraid something bad will happen. And I was always assuring her, nothing bad will happen. Why do you keep thinking that way? It's okay. Things will get better and blah, blah, blah. But it was really just blah, blah, blah. I, like, I didn't even believe. I was trying to reassure her. But everything I said to her, I didn't believe it was true deep down, you know? Because yeah. everyone is a target in Gaza, even babies, children, doctors. It's not like journalists are, only, are the only target. Everyone is a target. They deal with cameras as if it's weapon. Cameras scare them. You know, as you were describing all of these pressures upon you, not only were you have feeling this responsibility and thinking about the impact it could have on your family, but you're also a person, just like you said, you're a human and you're trying to survive this moment. Um, where did you tap into to draw strength from to, to navigate and hold so much pressure and and so much in that moment okay you know what's the weird thing gaza is the place that needs hope and help the most yet it's the place that gives hope and it helps the people the most like what kept me going to be honest is the kindness of people the kindness of strangers actually people that i don't know some days some days by the day some days by the way i didn't work i was just walking and sitting and i was like too stunned to speak like Okay, I'm looking at the demolished places, at the dead bodies. I'm like, what more to say or what more to film? I was like, just 
I couldn't film or work on some days, then a cute like little girl would offer me a cup of tea out of nowhere or a cup of water. Or like sometimes when I was working and uh, people and people like I go to a tent, they have nothing. They lost their house, they lost everything and they offer us something. You know how the most tragedy situation, sometimes it creates laughter, not because of it's funny, but because you're too speechless. You don't know what more reactions to give. I remember this lady that I worked on her story. She was in a tent in a backyard of a hospital with, she evacuated with her daughter and her birds. And I remember one day how it was raining, raining, raining heavy, like it's raining a lot. So the tent, uh, it was full of water and everything. And I went the next day and I was like, how did you survive yesterday? And we started joking. I'm like, you, she was like, I didn't shower in a month. And now because of the rain, we showered. I was like, yeah, as if it's, uh, don't think of it like the tent got drowned. Think of it as if uh, it's a pool and you got a free swim. And we started laughing, but of course it's not funny. And of course it's not a good thing, you know, but it was like a coping mechanism. So it, it was always us, the people, giving hope to each other to continue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, yeah. And I understand that after 46 days of, of you being there and reporting on the ground, you had the opportunity to leave Gaza, and that was at the end of November. But that was not an easy decision from you, from, from what I understand. Can you share a little bit more about that with us? Okay, so of course it wasn't an easy decision at all, but you know what's the thing? When I traveled, I thought that it will be two weeks, three weeks maximum, and I will be back. So that thought made me feel a little bit better about leaving. I'm like, it's okay. It's not like I'm leaving forever. I'll be back in no time. And my colleagues were like, it's been 46 days, so it will be over soon. Like, Mm. Like no one ever thought that it will last that long. And now I'm just thinking of my grandparents and thinking of 1948, how people, when they left back then, they thought the same. They thought we will be back in a day or two, in a week or two. And, and this day or two became 76 years. So now I'm thinking, when will we be able to go back? Mm. And I know and you also, also, oh yes, go ahead. Yeah, sorry for interrupting. Also, it wasn't only a personal decision. Like, mm-hmm. it's not that, oh, I want to leave and, okay, yalla, I'll just leave. Also, I have family that I worry about them and that they worry about me. So you can't be selfish and only think, I'm a reporter, I want to stay on the ground, I, I don't want to leave. Like, what about my family or people that care about me as well, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I know you've also talked about how you felt in that moment I don't know if guilt is the right word, but a, a feeling of why is it that you're able to, or people in your situation, uh, but others are not able to leave. Um, can you say a little bit more about that? Okay, I want to talk about guilt survival because you said the word mm. guilt. I believe that everyone in Gaza or every Palestinian in general feels guilty in a way or another. Like some people, they feel they feel sad, obviously, because they lost their house. Then they think of other people who are still under the rubble. So they're like, it's okay, thank God I only lost my house. Some people are sad because they lost their whole family. Then they're like, okay, at least I got to bury them. Other people, they lost their whole family and they're still under the rubble or like they got, their bodies got decomposed. They didn't even got to bury them. So thank God, you know, every 
everyone keeps thinking how other people got it way worse and they feel guilty. Like I was talking to a friend of mine that the other day and she was sad that she still has a house, that her house didn't get bombed. Meanwhile, almost everyone's house got bombed. And that's the same way I'm, I feel about leaving. Like I got the chance to mm -hmm. leave because I have a family member abroad, but many people who are even injured and they can't leave, you know? So mm -hmm. everyone feels guilty, but like I'm not the one who made the system and I believe that it's important to have Palestinian voices outside of Palestine as well mm -hmm. so that is what what makes me feel a little bit better like even if I'm physically in Australia but I'm still posting I'm, I'm being a guest speaker I'm doing interviews I'm raising awareness I'm still talking about Palestine but yeah, I hate how some people get to leave and others don't get to leave, especially injured people and the elderly people and kids and everyone, everyone, to be honest, even men and women. Everyone is living under a terrible situation. And what people abroad don't know is like, we don't want to be refugees. We don't want to leave our countries. It's not like we chose to leave Gaza or Palestine, but we got poorly displaced. Like yeah. things reach to a point, it's either you leave or you get killed. I swear yeah. some days at night I was just thinking, 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 and it always felt that not only me, I won't see another tomorrow, but Gaza won't see another day. Sometimes I swear, especially in the blackout days, I felt like two bombs and all of Gaza will be erased, we will all be killed, and there isn't even internet or anyone alive to cover what's happening, so like the world won't know that we once existed. Mm. And you know, the survivor's guilt that you described is such a common experience among so many people who go through situations like this and, and whether it's natural disaster or war. So I thank you for, you know, sharing that experience with us so vulnerably. Um, we only unfortunately have a few minutes left with you. And, and with that time, I have two questions. So you can, you know, let me know where you want to go with it. One, you know, what is your message to those Palestinians still in Gaza and then also I'm thinking about journalists in particular. Um, the number of journalists, dozens at least, have been killed during the war, and that's according to a tally kept by the Committee to Protect Journalists. And now it's getting increasingly difficult to get accurate information out of Gaza. So from your experience, you know, what, why was it so important for you and, and why is it so important for the rest of us to see what is happening there? Okay. So the media outlets don't always show the full pictures. So I'm glad we have social media to cover what's happening. But also what makes me happy, not, not happy, but I'm glad we have social media. So I believe social media is helping in humanizing Palestinians. Mm. Like people get to know us, people get to know our stories, we get to build connection with the outer world and we get to show, to show the truth as it is unfiltered. Like there are many people who didn't even study journalism and they're not journalists yet. They're holding their phones and they're showing the world what's happening. Like Abul, he's 17 years old. Lama Awujamus, I think she's nine or 10 years old. Like they're so young, yet they feel the responsibility that they have to hold their phones and show the world what's happening. Yeah. Well, Plessia, unfortunately, we are out of time, so we will have to leave it there. Plessia Alakad, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.